you know what? The more we practice something, the more confident and, and comfortable we get. So, so being confident is a really big component of it. And then, you know, um, I, I've been listening to a number of podcasts, uh, your podcast ahead of that, because I wanted to be prepared and, and thoughtful coming on today. And one of the things that you talk about consistently is curiosity. And I could not agree more with you. The, the best salespeople that I have ever worked with and continue to work with today are naturally curious. And in those moments where perhaps something unexpected comes up, the curiosity kicks in. They ask, that's really interesting. Tell me more about that. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Andy Champion. Andy is Vice President General Manager for EMEA and Australia New Zealand for High Spot. And in our conversation today, Andy and I are talking about the growing importance of sales enablement in tough economic times. And we explore the reasons why, when budgets are under ever greater scrutiny, we examine the four reasons business leaders should want to double down on sales enablement. We also talk about, in that context, the value of having a strategic enablement framework and how that can help drive consistent sales execution. And we talk about why companies that focus on what they can control, most specifically sales consistency, how they can survive and even thrive in any type of economy. So we get into this and much, much more. But before we get to Andy, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So let's jump into it. Here's something I don't get to say very often. Andy, welcome to the show. Andy, it's a pleasure to meet you. <laughs> yeah, I think you may be the first Andy I've had on the show. So, Fantastic. Yeah, after almost 1,100 episodes. So, uh, so anyway, introduce yourself. Tell us about you and what you do. So my name is Andy Champion, and uh, I'm a husband, a father, a, a friend, and a son. Uh, at work, uh, I currently lead high spots business in EMEA. Uh, and mm -hmm. I've got a background of, uh, gosh, I was adding it up just before I jumped, uh, hopped on to speak with you. I've got a background of 25 years in selling uh, as an individual contributor and mm -hmm. uh, more recently in sales leadership. Uh, but prior to that, um, I spent six years in the UK military as an officer. So I went through Sandhurst, I met the Queen, uh, and then I spent uh, the first three years after I graduated from Sandhurst uh, in Northern Ireland before the peace. So uh, we may touch on that. Uh, and some of my views of leadership, which were formed at that time. But uh, yeah, that's me in a nutshell. Yeah, I mean, you. I thought I read in your bio that you spent time in the Falklands as well. Yeah, I spent um, just shy of seven months down there. It was a long time after the Falklands War, which was uh, early 1980s. So uh, at the time I was a kid. So uh, that one uh, I, uh, I didn't uh, go uh, and, and experience. But I did experience the Falklands after the war. Uh, and I have to say, it's one of the most bleak but beautiful places on the planet. Don't go there in the Falklands summer, not the winter. <laughs> not the winter. But it, I mean, for people who don't know, it's you know, little islands uh, very close to Antarctica, uh, off the coast of, of Argentina, the tip of Argentina. I mean, it's one of the more remote places on the planet, right? Yeah, you've got the Southern Ocean. And literally at the, at the bottom of the planet, you have the Southern Ocean swirling around, and then you have this little landmass called the Falkland Islands. And then 800 uh, or so nautical miles from that, you have another even smaller island called South Georgia. 
uh, and, and literally um, they're the only land masses in this big swirling mass of an ocean. So you get constant wind. Uh, the weather is, um, well, you know, we're British, so we're kind of used to it. It's constantly changing. But mm-hmm. the one thing I remember is there is just a persistent wind every single day. So on an island <laughs> that small <laughs> in the middle of nowhere, what did you do for seven months? So um, that was, again, still during my time in the military. So we right. were down there to have a, a military deterrent presence um, to uh, to uh, help the Falkland Islanders remain part, you know, remain British, which is right. overwhelmingly what they wanted to be. Right. Um, and actually, you know, you say small island. It's it's for those people in in sort of the Europe and the UK. Um, it when you bring the islands together, because there's a couple of islands, main islands. It's the size of Wales. So actually, mm-hmm. it's relatively large landmass. Particularly right. when you've only got about two thousand people that live there. Yeah. Most of them live in the capital, Stanley. So it's it's a really unique place. Lots of incredible wildlife, um, but quite bleak sort of peaty landscape for uh, for the majority of it. Yeah. Did you find a rugby team down there? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. Uh, well, I mean, but your point. So Sand, you talk about Sandhurst. That's like the UK West Point, right? Yes. Military Academy. Yeah, I've, I, in my career, I've had the opportunity to work for two people who had been educated, uh, one at the U.S. Naval Academy and one at the Air Force Academy. No, the other one was West Point, excuse me. Um, best managers I worked for. Really? Tell me yeah, what, I mean, what, 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 why did they stand out? Well, it's, it's like... They just knew how to manage people better. I mean, that was just, they were just great people managers. Um, you know, not, not perfect, but I mean, I walked away thinking like, God, they really must do an incredible job in the military of, of training officers, because they were both, you know, graduate officers status, training officers how to, you know, work with teams, how to manage you know, in, individuals as individuals, uh, yeah, it was great experience with both of them. Yeah, I, I have to say, I look back. Um, I left in 1996, so it is quite some time ago now. But as a young man straight out of university, um, I, I believe it was foundational to me, um, not only in, in, in my work life, but in my, my personal life as well. And there's a lot that I look back on and I'm grateful for. You know, the concept of, of, of being, you know, a leader is very much a servant to, uh, to his or her people. Mm-hmm. You know, you're there to uh, to help accelerate them. You're 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 almost a catalyst, if you like, um, and your job is to help them be better at what they choose to do than if you were not there. Uh, right. And you know, it's about getting out ahead of them, removing the obstacles. It's about rolling your sleeves up, jumping in alongside them. Sometimes it's giving them a gentle, uh, you know, boot up the bum, and sometimes it's putting your arm around their shoulder. And I think you know, the military really teaches you. Certainly the British Army taught me as a leader that, that I was there to serve my people, my men. I was in mm-hmm. the infantry, so it was all men. Um, and it came down to the little things. You know, when it uh, when we were queuing up for food, maybe on an exercise, the first people to get fed were my people, my men. Right. And if there was some left at the end, then, you know, I was the last one through and I, I got what was left. Mm-hmm. Um, when we, uh, you know, came into uh, a place where we were going to maybe spend some time, get some rest, the first people to get the rest were my men 
Uh, and I think, you know, principles like that, putting my people first, being there for them, um, has really stuck with me throughout the 25 or so years uh, since. Yeah, and, and I th- you touched on this, is, is I think where so many people in management roles sort of miss the boat in sales these days is, yeah, they're so focused on a process, right? They're so focused on a, a playbook is, this, I believe, they sort of forget that, their real mission is, is how do I help these people become the best version of themselves? The ones that are working for me, that's my, that's my primary role. And yeah, I think of the phrase from Stephen M. R. Covey's new book about leadership, which is, is, which I think many people get backwards. He says, you know, your role is, is to manage things. You lead people. And, and yeah, we tend to think, see that backwards where people think we're managing people as if there are things and processes and that's not how you're going to get the best performance out of them yeah i think you know the way i describe that is is on the on the one hand if you focus on processes you're very much a manager and you know that may get you so far may not right uh there may be some downstream effects from that uh, both good and bad but um you know you're managing the process that for me as a manager as a leader i think it, it as you say it it's fundamentally different. It's about inspiring people yep. to do their best, as you said, to be the best version of themselves. Um, the other thing I would add to that, Andy, I think that is is critical is as a leader, it's really important that we create a space, a culture into which people can grow, right? We don't own that culture. We don't define that culture, but we certainly have a responsibility to create that safe space where people can bring their whole self to work mm-hmm. and, and where, you know, people with different backgrounds and different experiences can all have their voice heard. And one of the things that, that, that I am so thrilled about with my leadership team is we have people from all sorts of different backgrounds. Right. We have a lot of really strong female leaders and they bring a different perspective. Each one of them bring a different perspective to me because my job as a leader is not to have the monopoly on ideas. That is the last thing I'm there for. That's exhausting. Yeah. Well, and and do you know what? It's just as well because I'm not sure I would get very far. Yeah. But my job is to create that environment where people can come together, we can share ideas, we can debate, and then we can agree on which ones we want to take forward. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I I think in many segments of our sales profession these days, as I said, there's been this emphasis on conformity where it's really the – for me, that's a weakness, and I think it's reflected in sort of the data we see about what's happening in the sales profession in terms of performance and attainment and so on, is it's not the safe path, as many managers think, to try to make everybody sort of be somewhat the same, is, no, it's the, the path to performance is, yeah, trusting people, inspiring them, giving them the autonomy to experiment and try new things and bring their uniqueness to the job, and I said, become the best version of themselves. And that's necessarily going to be different than everybody else. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, in, in many respects, it's, it's about providing with people with a framework mm-hmm. into which they can explore, right. which they can very much tailor and personalize. But, you know, uh, I, I do believe that that, that learning process um, can be shortened. And, and, and I see evidence for this when you can provide a rubric or a blueprint. Mm-hmm. But I agree with you entirely that is very different from, 
you know, um, this experience of our conversation today uh, would be very different than if we had agreed ahead of time the precise words that we would use, the order of the questions, or indeed what the questions are going to be. Right. Um, and, and, you know, when, when I hear this concept of scripts, um, you know, I, I start to sort of the hairs on the back of my neck mm -hmm. go a little bit wonky because uh, I, I, I'm not sure that a script can cope with every single twist and turn in a, in a sales conversation. No. Uh, but what can cope with it that is, is somebody who is informed, um, who is prepared, who's been equipped with the knowledge they need, who's been trained on that, and who's been coached through deliberate practice. So that when they get that special moment with the customer or the potential customer, it's not the first time that they that they've taken whatever skills or whatever value proposition it is. It's not the first time they've had that conversation because they've had it probably tens or hundreds of times with their colleagues and with their manager, hopefully, and got feedback in that safe environment before they uh, they get those very very special moments with the customer. Yeah, I think that I also it's important they feel sort of a freedom to be able to to understand that every situation is necessarily be a little unique. Yeah, you want to practice, you want to practice, you talked about, you know, if you practice a dozen times, that's fantastic. But people have to understand that really for me, the role of the practice is that when you're in the moment and something different happens, that you really have this strong foundation to build off of, right? I mean, it's yeah. it's as opposed to sort of freezing and say, well, that doesn't, Hmm, that answer is not in the script. <laughs> what am I going to do? <laughs> uh... Absolutely. And, and again, I think that comes down to, to, to a couple of things, Andy. I, I do think that, do you know what? The more we practice something, the more confident and, and comfortable we get. Mm -hmm. so, so being confident is a really big component yep. of it. And then, you know, um, I, I've been listening to a number of podcasts, uh, your podcast ahead of that, because I wanted to be prepared and, and thoughtful coming on today. And one of the things that you talk about consistently is curiosity. Mm -hmm. And I could not agree more with you. The The best salespeople that I have ever worked with and continue to work with today are naturally curious. And in those moments where perhaps something unexpected comes up, the curiosity kicks in. Yep. They ask, that's really interesting. Tell me more about mm -hmm. that. Yeah, well, it's, and I talked about this a little bit too, is, you know, there's been research has uh, had a guest on last year. This company had done a report on this, and there's been other researches that we, ironically, we we sort of train curiosity out of people, and not I'm not saying in the, in the sales world necessarily, but just it's sort of in life, right? Is is you know we're all, we are all born to be curious. It's how we navigate the moment we're born, and we're in this strange environment. We're using our curiosity to to start orienting ourselves. But then as we grow up, we get into school, we get in our jobs. Yeah, it's like Hey, enough with the questions. Just do what you're told. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and it's such a shame. And people hear it's, that enough, they start sort of suppressing the curiosity. Yeah. It's it's such a shame because, as I say, I, I, I genuinely believe um, that curiosity is the one, one of the most powerful traits that we can have as human beings. Mm -hmm. You know, we're always learning. We, we never lose the ability to learn. Um, but that's very different from from being comfortable to learn, uh, and it's the same with curiosity. As you say, we go through as, as children. You know, I've I've got two kids; they're eighteen and twenty now, so they're kind of out of this stage. But 
Um, I remember growing up, they used to drive me mad. They'd ask me why. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but dad, why? And I'd kind of answer them and they'd say, yeah, yeah, but what, why? And, and, and they, 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 the curiosity, you know, they would keep asking yeah. until they kind of got to the, the nub of it. And I think in, in, in so many cases in the selling um, environments that we, we go through every day, if you're prepared to ask the questions and to listen intently with with the whole approach solely of learning rather than necessarily forcing somebody down a particular track my experience that that, that usually leads to better success not in you know you're not going to win every deal you're not going to win every conversation because do you know what for some customers you might not have the right solution right. but you will always come away from those conversations um, having built respect and trust and and sales is a long game and uh, you know sometimes those conversations come back two or three years later and, and can really be helpful and, and if they don't well at least you you, you um, walk away with your dignity and your respect intact right yeah I and to that sort of on top of that point is is I at least speaking personally you know, and for others I know as well as is, is what you get from being curious in the conversations we have, and I've been fortunate enough in my career, I've traveled the world over many, many times and sold on every continent, but Antarctica and the people I've met, the conversations I've had, the things I've learned just through being in these situations, being curious and wanting to learn about other people, learn about you know, their businesses and so on. So it keeps you in the profession. Yeah. I mean, I think absolutely. And so I think I think about people who just are sort of robotic in the way they sell, and it's like, you know, you could go work in a factory if you have so little interest, right? And it's just a job, and you're just going through the motions. Uh, yeah, maybe try something else because to me, sales is a creative pursuit, right? And and uh, part of what fuels that creativity is is engaging, connecting with other people, and learning about you know, what they do and who they are. And yeah, it's just, I don't know. I don't know how people would just sort of, I said, so prescriptive in the way they sell, stay in the job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, look, I think that um, our role as sales professionals is, is really pretty simple. You know, we've got a bunch of products or services that, that, that we have in our kit bag. Our role is to go out into the world and explore the world and find people who have problems and challenges that we can help overcome, mm -hmm. hopefully in a fairly innovative, forward-thinking way. Yep. Part of that is, um, you know, is about sometimes educating and providing a, a different or a new perspective to a challenge that somebody has, yep. helping them understand that perhaps there's there's a different way of thinking about that challenge or overcoming the challenge. But until you get to those challenges, until you get to the personal motivations until you get to understand the dynamics between what on average now there's 11.2 plus buyers in a b2b decision making uh, cycle right up from five just what, six seven years ago i mean it's got much more complex until you understand all of those things your your chances of success are relatively limited you might get lucky once or twice yeah. But certainly consistency of performance in a large part comes from aligning, um, you know, finding those customers where uh, what you do can genuinely make 
a huge impact and doing it in a way that you build and curate trust over time. Yes. And that, um, in my experience, is very well done through asking intelligent questions and listening intently to the answer and being comfortable to go wherever that conversation mm -hmm. goes. Great, 100%. It's almost like you read my book. Um, almost like I read the book. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I summarized in my last book, the, you know, the job of a salesperson is to listen to the buyer, understand the things that are most important to them in terms of the challenges they face and the outcomes they want to achieve, and then help them get that. And if you can do that, yeah consistently yeah you're not going every deal but you're going to win a lion's share of them yeah and and yeah and look you know if you can go into those conversations with um with a rubric with a framework um you know understanding what to know say show and do is a you know is a is a phrase that we often mm -hmm. use uh internally a high spot right uh understand the persona that the 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 the, the the likely challenges of the person that you are going to speak to, assuming this is your first conversation. Typically, what are some of the things on their minds? What are some of the metrics? What are some of the dynamics? What are some of the things in their industry? Uh, and again, I know you talk extensively about this. You, you, you have to understand how businesses work mm -hmm. and you have to understand the, the role of those individuals that you're speaking with. Um, and if you do that, you're much more likely to have an engaging conversation. Uh, um, and, it, and it really starts with that. And, and I think that is something that, that we in the world of enablement um, can help our sellers with. We can help them prepare by providing the information, the content that they need um, so that they go into those conversations with a, with a, you know, with a high level of, of, of confidence. And I've seen that time and time again. I saw it, at, at, you know, especially at DocuSign, mm -hmm. moving from just a, a pure electronic signature um, play, one product with fairly defined buyers right. through to, uh, you know, the DocuSign Agreement Cloud, which was contract lifecycle management, which all the things you had to do to prepare a contract to draft right. it before you got it to signature, and then all the things you had to do after signature to manage it. Uh, and, and DocuSign went from being a single product company to a platform. Uh, and, you know, the journey that we had to go on there was to, help our salespeople understand completely new a, a completely new stakeholder group a completely new buying cycle um and uh, a completely new set of criteria by which docusign was either going to be procured or it wasn't mm -hmm. um and uh, you know it was quite a journey so i mean let's i want to talk about enablement and uh, sort of two questions the first one is Interestingly enough, I was just on a conversation with somebody for another episode. I was recording right before talking to you, and and who had been been in enablement for a long time, and and he said, you know, he felt like he still had to define what enablement is for people. And even though I know, you know, we know employment, I think what I read somewhere, forty five thousand people now have the title of enablement somewhere. Or it's growing rapidly, but in your mind, what? What's enablement? So I think it is the process of um, training, you know, equipping training and coaching your frontline people to have those effective conversations with customers and prospective customers. 
It's about, you know, there's a component for sure about understanding, analyzing the behaviors that are leading to successful outcomes Mm -hmm. um, and, and taking that back in. So it's very much a cyclical process. And of course, you know, it has to be aligned to the business outcomes that a company is seeking to drive. Right. Um, and so, you know, it's about distilling that strategy down into, you know, bite-sized chunks that the front line um, understand and can align to. Uh, and, and again, as I say, you know, that equip, train, coach, and, and the coach bit is so often forgotten, but is so, so powerful. Right. And then, and, 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 you know, it's, it's a, it's a sport analogy. We were, we were talking uh, about rugby earlier, right. And, um, you know, um, players don't just turn up on match day and hope things go well. They spent hours and hours, um, understanding the different moves that they're going to have. Um, they've then probably gone on to the practice field under the under the eyes of coach, and they've they've done that in a in a you know in a in a dry environment with no competition, with no no opponents, uh, and then you know when they go on to the field of play and they put that into practice, in um, you know in in the live in in the in the match, the coaches are watching and they provide feedback when they come off at half time. They'll give them feedback. This is going well. This is not going so well. And I think it's very much the same um, in the world of sales. We can help our people understand what good looks like. We can give them a recipe. We can give them a blueprint. It's not a straitjacket, but it is a rubric, a framework. Mm-hmm. And we can create environments where they can practice that with no other cons- consequences than fantastic feedback. Right. And then when they're out there, in the field, whether virtually or, or whether, you know, in person, you know, you and I, when, when we started selling, right, we were in the car and we'd go out and we'd see customers. Yes. Our manager would ride alongside us. And if we had a great manager, she or he would, after the meeting, would, you know, would come out with some notes and say, hey, Andy, how did you think that went? And then provide us with some feedback. And it's kind of the same, except, you know, we've got all sorts of tools and technologies to allow us to do that in a virtual world at scale. But it's that equip, train, coach, and analyze that I think is 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 really at the nub of what enablement is uh, is all about. And so, a question I have, and this is just more sort of a global issue, is is yeah, you know, we've had this explosion in in enablement over the last ten, fifteen years. Really necessary, really needed, but at the same time, you know, data shows like quota attainments fallen year over year over year for like the last 10 years in the B2B world. I mean, how do we, how do we square that? Right. Is what's, is one not having, are they completely unrelated? Um, I'm sort of interested in your take on that. What are we not, what are we not doing that more of that we should be doing? Um, so I think that um, one, one of the, the, the reports that I look at is uh, regularly is the, the state of sales enablement. And, and actually, you know, the data would indicate, for example, those organizations that um, have had uh, a sales enablement team for two plus years mm-hmm. see a demonstrable uplift in things like win rates versus companies that have, have maybe had it for less than two years. Uh, but just because you've got an enablement function or an enablement team, doesn't necessarily mean that you're 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 going to see those outcomes, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that 
um, you are going to see shorter ramp times, that you are going to see more more sellers mm -hmm. hit quotas. Um, because just you know, just like any team, if I come back to you know to rugby or soccer, you know some teams are well practiced, they're well drilled, they have great coaches, and 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 some don't. Um, and so you know where I see enablement have its greatest impact is that it is um, it typically has sponsorship at the highest mm -hmm. levels. It has buy-in from the executive team. And the, the executive team work hand in glove with that enablement function to take the company's strategy and to break it down into those bite-sized chunks um, that I spoke about before. Right. One of the other traits that, that I see time and time again in those companies that really do excel versus the others that do pretty mm -hmm. well or, or maybe do less well is that they're very deliberate um, around selecting what to take to the front line and the adage here is is less can quite often mean so more. give an example of that so look economic headwinds are are, right. are definitely biting yes. right yes. i think they've hit really quite hard in the us they're starting to to hit in emir we're seeing some companies cut back um and, and layoffs and the temptation you know when you're a little bit behind when you know, you're chasing down a number for the quarter. The, the, the natural temptation is to, oh, let's do some more training or let's do some mm. more of, um, you know, let's let's do some more, um, but let's put some more call blocks right. in. Um, let's throw more training. Let's put more collateral. Let's throw more at the front line. And, and the reality is that if you're a frontline seller, you have – many, many, many things uh, that you're asked to do. You've got to keep your CRM system up to date. You know, you've got to stay on top of your certifications and training. Um, and, you know, what I've seen time again is organizations say, oh, let's build a program for this. Let's, you know, we need to, we need to go after CFOs. Let's build a program for that. And they pull people out of the field. Um, and one of the things commonly that happens is the training is delivered. Um, maybe it's, you know, we pull people out, put them in a classroom mm -hmm. and then guess what? As soon as they go out of the classroom, there's no reinforcement. Right. And again, I come back to the equip, train, coach, and this is where the coaching comes in. The, the companies that focus on following up help to reduce the, you know, that, that uh, I've seen lots of figures, uh, you know, 70, 80% plus of training is forgotten about within the first um, within the thir first 30 days, right? Yeah. Uh, so there's some stats saying you lose 70% within a week. And look, of course you do. Because if you're taken out of the field to do some training that when you go back to the field isn't reinforced, then no wonder the behavioral change doesn't take mm -hmm. place. But when you bring your first line managers with you and the first line managers reinforce that training and that training it has been very carefully thought about to directly impact a particular phenomenon within that business, right? Whether it's a, it, it's a competitive play against a new entrant, for example. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the point is here, um, as people, we've only got a finite capacity. And so one of the art of, uh, of sales enablement is to choose what we take out into, uh, you know, into that mind mm -hmm. of our salespeople because that it's a very, very precious resource. And we only want to put into the minds of the people, the things that really, really matter. 
Do you see in, in the clients you work with, you know, this, and this to me is sort of a core issue and you, you sort of touched on is you know, the role of frontline management for reinforcing training. But from the conversations I have with sales leaders and so on is, is that that's frontline managers, if anything, are under enabled themselves. Mm-hmm. And critically so, perhaps, because to your point is, is and certainly data has shown this is, hey, you know, the easiest ways to get an uplift in performance is through effective coaching. Who delivers the coaching? The frontline managers. Are we really enabling and training our frontline managers to understand how to coach? You know, not to do deal reviews, but how to how to coach in a way, maybe as we talked about earlier on with, you know, training you might have gotten in the military about how do you put the people first? How do you help them, you know, achieve their goals, understand what's important to them and how do you help them achieve what they want to achieve? Um, we see a lot of deal coaching, but are we training and enabling those critical frontline managers to be able to have those type of coaching conversations they need? Uh, uh, committing to train and enablement, uh, enable your frontline managers is a game changer. They are the people where your strategy is translated into action yep. and consistent behaviors or not. And so just like any other skill that you might want to, to give a salesperson, I don't know, doing great discovery, um, creative construct, you know, creating mm-hmm. constructive tension. I know you had Jen on from Challenger yeah. uh, a few yeah. weeks back. Um, I'm a huge fan of Challenger. Uh, it changed my career um, many years right. ago when I went through that process. And a lot of the things still stay with me to this day. But just like back then, I, I learned this concept of creating constructive tension. I would argue that we can help our managers learn the art of coaching. Mm-hmm. We can give them rubrics. We can give them a blueprint, a, a recipe, if you like, to understand what good coaching looks right. like and what less good coaching looks like. Right. We can equip, train, coach, and analyze them on coaching. And, you know, when you're out ahead of things with your first line managers, the pace at which you can see the change when you bring in the different programs you might want to to bring in are demonstrably different from when first line managers are not bought in that they do not understand the benefit they are even worse not prepared to answer the questions that that their teams are going to have because you haven't invested time with them in advance so you know if 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 people are thinking about diagnosing what they might be doing better things maybe aren't quite working a, a really great place to to look at the start is well how prepared are your first line managers and how effective are they with their coaching? Well, isn't there some adage from, I was trying to Google it here while you were talking, um, from the military about like, you know, an army's only as good as its sergeants? Oh, the, the, the British army wouldn't function without uh, our non-commissioned right. officers. And which- they are. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's sort of the, the analogy to frontline managers, right? Is, you know, to me is, yeah, they're, they're the, the non-coms of the sales world and they make it all click if they're trained appropriately and, you know, given the tools they need to be able to do their job. 
Yeah. And and you get a wonderful leverage, right? Because each of, of your frontline managers probably has, I don't know, five to seven right. people. And so, you know, if you've got one of those really, really cranking, you get that multiplier effect. Uh, and so I'm a, I'm a huge advocate um, of making sure that our frontline managers are out a, ahead of, you know, we don't always get it right, but certainly we we put a lot of effort into making sure they're out ahead of the things that are that are coming down the track for our individual contributors. Yeah, I, I in general, my sense is again from the conversations I have is that uh, yeah, we're across the board server. There's a lot more we could invest in that regard. I mean, I, I sort of like to pose the question just hypothetically, but say, well, yeah, if we took the total budget we spend on sales training and took the percentage that we spend on training individuals and the percentage we take on spend spend on enabling our frontline managers and flip those percentages, we'd probably come out ahead. Yeah, for sure. For sure. The, 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 you know, as, uh, uh, for senior executives, um, you know, it's where the rubber hits. Yeah. Right. So another question I wanted to ask you, cause you know, you're in the, the enablement field and, uh, selling to enablement organizations. And this is, yeah, I don't think it's off topic, but it's, are, are we looking at enablement globally enough? And you know, one of the things I'm sort of a topic, a pet topic of mine is, is for instance, you know, mental health within sales. Um, mm-hmm. should that be part of responsibility of enablement to you know, take that away from supposing an HR and that's as being an employee benefit as they might call it in the United States and say, no, this is, this is part of how we enable our sellers is to be able to, yeah, I always like to give the example in the streaming show billions. I don't know if you've ever seen that where uh, critical employees, the mental health coach that's on staff and then this hedge fund trading, you know, intense, hedge fund training, hedge fund training environment. Uh, yeah, they're raised free to stop off the floor if they need it to, you know, go consult with a mental health coach. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. It seems like, huh, maybe that should be part of enablement. Even, you know, physical, because increasingly people are writing about the importance of, you know, sleep and nutrition and so on and bringing our best selves to work. And especially in, in sales, because again, there's sort of this growing body of people writing about sales as sort of the, you know, the athletes of the business world. If we take a more holistic view, is can you envision a time where some of these things get included under the responsibility of enablement? Uh, the place I would first go, Andy, in, in answering that is, um, uh, I, and I, I, I f- I, I, I have a strong view on this, but it's lightly held. Um, I, I, I have a pretty strong view that, look, as a leader, right. the the well-being of my people is, if not my primary responsibility, it's certainly in the top mm-hmm. three. I would argue it's it's probably my primary responsibility. That's That's very much how I try to act and behave um, to create that. And we spoke about this earlier, creating that environment, that culture where people can grow and mm-hmm. flourish. And I think a huge part of that is mental right. health, is mental health. A huge part of that is creating a, a, a culture where people genuinely feel a, a, a strong sense of belonging. They can bring their whole selves to work, whomever they may be, without fear or right. favor. 
uh, and and that um, that their their voice is heard, right? That you create a space, and of course, you know, when your voice is heard, you have a a responsibility to make sure you're thoughtful about what you say. But you know, as a leader, that very much sits mm-hmm. with me. Um, and I work with partners across my organization to help with that. I think without a doubt, one specific area that enablement can help with is to prepare people um, so that when they have those conversations, when they're going about their day-to-day work, they are more effectively because they've been equipped, trained, Mm -hmm. coached, right? And my experience is that when you are more proficient in what you do, it's more likely that you will find joy in what you do or certainly fulfillment Mm -hmm. in what you do. And then quite often what, what will follow from that fulfillment and that from that joy, quite often what will follow from that is success, right? Mm -hmm. Happy people generally get successful sooner or later. Successful people don't always find happiness. And so for me, enablement's part here is probably not to to own they're probably not directly responsible for the mental well-being but they have a large part to play because they can help all of us be more effective in our roles every yeah. single day yeah you know, it's, that's a great answer I, mean, I think it's it's yeah i've been thinking more of this about this topic is because we've heard a lot especially during the pandemic you know a lot of statistics study about just the stresses. Some of all, everybody, all employees have stresses during this time, but perhaps magnified for sellers given the pressures of the job and the performance-related things. Yeah, I mean it's it's been huge, yeah. right? If you think about, we 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 went into a pandemic, um, uh, wholly inexperienced in for, in many cases for the virtual world that we were suddenly right. plunged in, and and there was no choice of that, right? With the various lockdowns across the world with the different governments, it's like, okay, you are now working from home, whether you're enabled to do mm-hmm. that or not. Um, and of course, you know, most people figured that out. A lot of people figured that out, some quicker than others, but most people kind of figured it out. And then just as we got comfortable with that, the rules <laughs> changed again, except there is no sort of government that's now telling us, you must be at work one day a week, two days a week, three days a week, five days a week. And I think, you know, what I see are many organizations trying to navigate mm-hmm. that. And for sellers, um, you know, we've, we've, we've got to now navigate a world where, um, you know, maybe we can meet in person, maybe we can't. But one thing I do know is that uh, I think the bar to get time from our stakeholders from you know the various buying um, uh, members, your committee members that we have, let alone executives, you know the bar has been raised. Mm-hmm. Um, you know there's all sorts of data there about forty uh, plus percent. You know would would much prefer a digital only experience. That's only gonna uh, that's only gonna ex- increase in in my view. And I think one of the paths to success is being able to stand out um, from the crowd. Right. And I. Uh, I think it was on your podcast with Steve Hall where you talked about, hey, if everybody else is is sending emails, maybe you should pick up the phone or send a letter, a handwritten letter. I couldn't agree more. You know, we we have to stand out from the crowd. 
um, and we've got to navigate this new world. And of course, that can be quite stressful. So again, if we analyze what's working and what's not, and we can bring that, if we can codify that and bring that into best practices, and then we can equip, train and coach people on what those behaviors look like, we can help them navigate this new world more quickly. And, and again, to come back to your topic of mental well-being, I hope reduce the stress levels that go along with that. Yeah, I mean, it, sales comes with uh, built-in stressors, right? Is just periods, performance periods. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's, this goes back to the idea of enabling managers is how do we help them alleviate some of the unnecessary stress and strains that come, right? Is in part, it's them understanding better what their jobs are to be leaders, not managers, as we talked about before. And yeah, yeah. And it's, we're in this, this tough period, especially since we've been embracing all these new technologies which generate tons of data and, and managers finding themselves distracted by the need to manage the data instead of managing people, uh, which is a, a huge trade-off that's, we need to find a way to address that. I don't have an answer necessarily right now, but yeah. it's it's um, we we are overwhelmed by data, and yet many 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 businesses are insight poor. <laughs> yeah, well, and many companies, yeah, they're insight poor, even though they have the data too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. well, and that's. I do think there's in some companies that operate on this assumption that all data has equal value and which is just not the case. And I think we're having challenges collected in the business world, sales world is discerning what are the signals that are really important and are we even looking at the right ones? Um, yeah. I'd argue in several cases we're not, but yeah, one that's unknowable for, for instance is okay. Are we better off if people congregate in the offices again? I mean, I'm not advocating that that's necessarily what happens, but we're operating in an environment where we don't know, right? I mean, people will say, yeah, we want to operate remotely. Everybody would love to have more of the freedom and flexibility to do that. But when a corporate leader says, oh, no, we're really missing something by not having everybody here, well, we don't know that. We don't know that's true. We don't know that's untrue. And that's, that's part of the problem right now. Yeah, I mean, look, a, a, a sample size of one is is always a little bit dangerous. But you know, maybe let me touch on our experience. We we've uh, we have a hybrid mm -hmm. environment, so we provide people with a, a degree of flexibility, a high degree of flexibility right. in how they manage their their work. Um, I think that's very important, uh, and I think that's very important because uh, expectations have changed. And, you know, look, if you hire really smart people and you create that, that, that culture, you know, one of the signs of a really great culture that I didn't mention before that, that I always look for is discretionary mm -hmm. effort, right? And that's, that, that's the, the work that people do, the brilliant work that people do, even when nobody else is, right. is looking or when nobody else will find out. And that, for me, is a real test of a great culture. Um, and, and so, look, we provide a high degree of flexibility to people, but we also do encourage people to, to come together from time to time. Um, and 
what we find is that it does a number of does a number of things. Um, one of them is it reinst- it reinforces mm-hmm. the social bonds and, and the trust and the camaraderie, and and I think that that is very very important. That probably goes all the way back right. to my military days as well. But you know, innately human beings are Absolutely. social animals. That's that's how we have evolved. And you know, a, a three-year pandemic is not going to change a uh, no. hundred thousand years plus of, of evolution. Absolutely. Right? So, so I think that there's there's a component there. Um, I would also argue that there is a component of of accelerated learning when we are with and around other people. You know, that that sort of learning by watching, by observing. You know, absorbing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the, the, the challenge, I think, is how do we create an environment where pe- when people come together, there is a demonstrable benefit around the collaboration that, that they are there to do. There is no point, I don't think, in bringing people together in an office saying, you must come in three days a week if all they're going to do is spend eight or ten hours of that time on Zoom yeah. calls and not speak right. to any other colleagues around the office. So we're finding success in curating uh, people's schedules so that there is a demonstrable reason to come in and there is benefit to them in terms of helping them perform yeah. more effectively. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think this is this is the next thing that we have to figure out. And we will. It's not going to be instantaneous. But, um, yeah, to get past the anecdotal and actually – start gathering some data I, intuitively i think sure i think it makes sense for people to be together more often but that's just a guess right <laughs> i have no idea i could be completely wrong um and unfortunately we're making a, corporate leaders are making a lot of decisions based on gut instinct at this point on that so all right well Andy, thank you for joining me. This has been a great conversation. And and for people that aren't aware, I tell it's it's midnight where Andy is. He was nice enough to stay up late to uh, to join me uh, on the show. So I really appreciate it. And uh, if people want to learn more about what you or connect with you and learn more about Highspot, how can they do that? Well, I'm on LinkedIn. So just uh, look me up there, uh, Andy Champion. Uh, and if uh, anybody would like to follow up in person, it's andy.champion at highspot.com. I'd be happy to dig into any of the topics we've discussed. And Andy, thank you so much. I've really, really enjoyed oh, me the too. conversation. And a pleasure to meet you. So uh, we'll do this again. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I am so grateful for your support of this show. And I want to thank our guest, Andy Champion, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode... Please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement, with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help with that. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.